Queen Lucia by E. F. Benson, read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter Seven. A fresh thrill went through an atmosphere already supersaturated with excitement when next morning all Lucia's friends who had been bidden to the garden party, Titum, were rung up on the telephone and informed that the party was Hightum. That caused a good deal of extra work, because the Titum robes had to be put away again, and the Hightums aired and brushed and valeted. But it was well worth it, for Rhizome had not the slightest difficulty in conjecturing that Olga Braceley was to be among the guests. For a cultured and artistic centre, the presence of a star that blazed so regally in the very zenith of the firmament of art absolutely demanded the Hightum, which the presence of poor Lady Ambermere, though she would not have liked that, had been powerless to bring out of their cupboards. And these delightful anticipations concentrated themselves into one rose-coloured point of joy, when no less than two independent observers, without collusion, saw the piano-tuner either entering or leaving the hearst, while a third and ear-witness unmistakably heard the tuning of the piano actually going on. It was thus clear to all penetrating minds that Olga Braceley was going to sing. It was further known that something was going on between her and Georgie, for she had been heard by one misanthropist to ask for Georgie's number at the telephone in the Ambermere Arms. Etiquette forbade her actually to listen to what passed, but she could not help hearing Olga laugh at something, presumably, that Georgie said. He himself took no part in the Green Parliament that morning but had been seen to dash into the fruiterers and out again before he went in a great hurry to the hearst shortly after twelve-thirty. Classes on Eastern philosophy under the tuition of Mrs. Quantock's Indian were already beginning to be hinted at, but today in the breathless excitement about the prima donna nobody cared about that. They might all have been taking lessons in cannibalism and nobody would have been interested. Finally, about one o'clock, one of the motors in which the party had arrived yesterday drew up at the door of the Ambermere Arms, and presently Mr. Braceley, no dear, Mr. Shuttleworth, got in and drove off alone. That was very odd conduct in a lately married bridegroom, and it was hoped that there had been no quarrel. Olga had, of course, been given no directions as to Hightum or Titum, and when she walked across to George's house shortly after half-past one, only Mrs. Weston, who was going back home to lunch at top speed, was aware that she was dressed in a very simple dark blue morning frock. That would almost have passed for scrub. It is true that it was exceedingly well cut, and had not the look of having been rolled up in a ball and hastily ironed out again, that usually distinguished scrub and she also wore a string of particularly fine pearls round her neck, the sort of ornament that in Rhizome would only be seen in an evening Hightum, even if anybody in Rhizome had owned such things. Lucia, not long ago, had expressed the opinion that jewels were vulgar except at night, and for her part she wore none at all, preferring one Greek cameo of uncertain authenticity. Georgie received Olga alone, for Hermie and Ursi were not yet back from their gulf. It is good of you to let me come without my husband, she said. His excuse is toothache, and he's driven into Brinton. I am very sorry, said Georgie. You needn't be, for now I'll tell you his real reason. 
he thought that if he lunched with you he would have to come on to the garden party and that he was absolutely determined not to do you were the thin end of the wedge in fact my dear what a delicious house all panelled with that lovely garden behind and croquet may we play croquet after lunch i always try to cheat and if i'm found out i lose my temper georgie won't play with me so i play with my maid this georgie will said he how nice of him and do you know what we did this morning before the toothache didn't begin we went all over that house three doors away which is being done up it belongs to the proprietor of the ambermere arms and oh i wonder if you can keep a secret yes said georgie he probably had never kept one yet but there was no reason why he shouldn't begin now well i'm absolutely determined to buy it only i daren't tell my husband until i've got it he has an odd nature when a thing is done settled and there's no help for it he finds it adorable but he also finds fatal objections to doing it at all if he is consulted about it before it is done so not a word i shall buy it make the garden furnish it down to the minutest detail and engage the servants and then he'll give it me for a birthday present i had to tell somebody or i should burst georgie nearly swooned with fervour and admiration but what a perfect plan he said you really like our little rhizome it's not a question of liking it's a mere detail of not being able to do without it i don't like breathing but i should die if i didn't i want some delicious hole-in-the-corner lazy backwater sort of place where nothing ever happens and nobody ever does anything i've been observing all the morning and your habits are adorable nothing ever happens here and that will precisely suit me when i get away from my work georgie was nearer swooning than ever at this he could hardly believe his ears when she talked of rhizome being a lazy backwater and almost thought she must have been speaking of london where as lucia had acutely observed people sat in the park all morning and talked of each other's affairs and spent the afternoon at picture galleries and danced all night there was a flippant lazy existence but she was far too much absorbed in her project to notice his stupefaction but if you breathe a word she said everything will be spoilt it has to burst on georgie oh and there's another mulberry tree in your garden as well as the one in the front it's too much her eyes followed foljambi out of the door and i know your parlour-maid is called paravicini or grosvenor she said no she's foljambi said georgie she laughed i knew i was right she said it's practically the same thing oh and last night i never had such an awful evening why didn't you warn me and my husband should have had the toothache then instead of this morning what happened asked he but the woman's insane that ambermere parrot i mean georgie and i were ten minutes late and she had a jet tiara on and why did she ask us to dine at a quarter to eight if she meant a quarter to eight instead of saying half past seven they were actually going into dinner when we came a mournful procession of three moth-eaten men and three whiskered women upon which the procession broke up as if we had been the riot act and was arranged again as a funeral procession and georgie with lady ambermere was the hearse we dined in the family vault and talked about lady ambermere's pug 
She talked about you too, and said you were of county family, and that Mrs. Lucas was a very decent sort of woman, and that she herself was going to look in on her garden party today. Then she looked at my pearls and asked if they were genuine. So I looked at her teeth, and there was no need to ask about them. Don't miss out a moment, said Georgie greedily. Whenever Lady Ambermere spoke, everybody else was silent. I didn't grasp that at first, for no one had explained the rules, so she stopped in the middle of a sentence and waited till I had finished. Then she went on again, precisely where she had left off. Then, when we came into the drawing-room, the whiskered ladies and I, there was a little woman like a mouse sitting there, and nobody introduced her. So, naturally, I went to talk to her, before which the great parrot said, Will you kindly fetch my wool-work, Miss Lyle? And Miss Lyle took a sack out of the corner, and inside was the sacred carpet. And then I waited for some coffee and cigarettes, and I waited, and I waited, and I am waiting still. The parrot said that coffee always kept her awake, and that was why. And then Georgie came in with the others, and I could see by his face that he hadn't had a cigarette either. It was then half-past nine, and then each man sat down between two women, and Pug sat in the middle and looked for fleas. Then Lady Ambermere got up and came across the charmed circle to me. She said, I hope you have brought your music, Mrs. Shuttleworth. Kindly open the piano, Miss Lyle. It was always considered a remarkably fine instrument. Olga waved the fork on which was impaled a piece of the pineapple which Georgie had purchased that morning at the fruiterer's. The stupendous cheat, she said. I thought it must be a joke, and laughed with the greatest politeness. But it wasn't. You'll hardly believe it, but it wasn't. One of the whiskered ones said, That will be a great treat. And another put on the face that everyone wears at concerts. And I was so stunned that I sang, and Lady Ambermere beat time and the pug barked. She pointed a finger at Georgie. Never till the day of judgment, she said, when Lady Ambermere gnashes her beautiful teeth for ever and ever, will I set foot in that house again, nor she in my house. I will set fire to it sooner. There, my dear, what a good lunch you have given me. May we play croquet at once? Lucia's garden parties were scheduled from four to seven, and half an hour before the earliest guest might be expected, she was casting an eagle eye over the preparations, which to-day were on a very sumptuous scale. The bowls were laid out in the bowling alley, not because anybody in Hightum's dresses was the least likely to risk the stooping down and strong movements that the game entailed, but because bowls were Elizabethan. Between the alley and the lawn nearer to the house was a large marquee, where the commoner crowd, though no crowd could be really common in Rhizome, would refresh itself. But even where none are common, there may still be degrees in rarity, and by the side of this general refreshment room was a smaller tent carpeted with oriental rugs, and having inside it some half-dozen chairs, and two seats which can only be described as thrones for Lady Ambermere or Olga Braceley, while Lucia's guru, though throne-worthy, would very kindly sit in one of his most interesting attitudes on the floor. This tent was designed only for high converse, and common guests, if they were good, would be led into it and introduced to the great presences, 
while for the refreshment of the presences, in intervals of audience, a more elaborate meal with peaches and four sorts of sandwiches was laid in the smoking parlour. Thus, those guests for whom audiences were not provided could have the felicity of seeing the great ones pass across the lawn on their excursions for food, and possibly trip over the croquet hoops, which had been left up to give an air of naturalness to the lawn. In the smoking parlour, an Elsevier or two were left negligently open, as if Mr. and Mrs. Lucas had been reading the works of Perseus and Juvenal when the first guests arrived. In the music-room, finally, which was not usually open on these occasions, there were fresh flowers. The piano, too, was open, and if you had not seen the Elzevirs in the smoking-parlour, it would have been reasonable for the early guests, if they penetrated here, to imagine that Mrs. Lucas had been running over the last act of Siegfried a minute before. In this visit of final inspection, Lucia was accompanied by her guru, for he was part of the domestic dramatis personae, and she wanted him to be discovered in the special tent. She pointed out the site of his proposed discovery to him. Probably the first person I shall bring in here, she said, will be Lady Ambermere, for she is noted for her punctuality. She is so anxious to see you, and would it not be exciting if you found you had met before? Her husband was governor of Madras, and she spent many years in India. Madras, gracious lady, asked the guru. I do know Madras. There are many dark spirits in Madras. And she was at the English residency? Yes, she says Mr. Kipling knows nothing about India. You and she will have much to talk about. I wish I could sit on the floor, too, and listen to what you say to each other. It will be a great treat, said the guru thoughtfully. I love all who love my wonderful country. Suddenly he stopped, and put his hands up to his head, palms outwards. There are wonderful vibrations today, he said. All day I feel that some word is on way from the guide, some great message of light. Oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if it came to you in the middle of my garden party, said Lucia enthusiastically. Ah, gracious lady, the great word comes not so. It comes always in solitude and quiet. Gracious lady knows that as well as guru. Pure guruism and social preeminence struggled together in Lucia. Guruism told her that she ought to be ecstatic at the idea of a great message coming, and should instantly smile on his desire for solitude and quiet, while social preeminence whispered to her that she had already dangled the presence of a high-caste mystic from Benares before the eyes of Lady Ambermere, who only came from Madras. On the other hand, Olga Bracely was to be an even more resplendent guest than either Lady Ambermere or the Guru. Surely Olga Bracely was enough to set this particular garden party on the giddiest of pinnacles and an awful consequence lurked as a possibility if she attempted to force her guru not to immune himself in solitude and quiet, which was that conceivably he might choose to go back to the pit whence he was digged, namely the house of poor Daisy Quantock. The thought was intolerable, for with him in her house she had seen herself as dispenser of eastern mysteries and mistress of omism to Rhizom. In fact, the guru was her august stunt. It would never do to lose him before the end of July, and rage to see old Rizal make pilgrimages to Daisy. There was a thin-lipped firmness, too, about him at this moment. She felt that under provocation he might easily defy or desert her. 
she felt she had to yield and so decided to do so in the most complete manner ah yes she said i know how true that is dear guru go up to hamlet no one will disturb you there but if the message comes through before lady ambermere goes away promise me you will come back he went back to the house where the front door was already open to admit lady ambermere who was telling her people when to come back for her and fled with the heels of his slippers tapping on the oak stairs up to hamlet softly he shut out the dark spirits from madras and made himself even more secure by turning the key in his door it would never do to appear as a high-caste brahmin from benares before anyone who knew india with such fatal intimacy or he might not entirely correspond with her preconceived notions of such a person lady ambermere's arrival was soon followed by that of other guests and instead of going into the special tent reserved for the lions she took up a commanding position in the middle of the lawn where she could examine everybody through her tortoiseshell handled lorgnette she kept peppino by her who darted forward to shake hands with his wife's guests and then darted back again to her poor miss lyle stood behind her chair and from time to time as ordered gave her a cape or put up her parasol or adjusted her footstool for her or took up pug or put him down as her patroness required most of the time lady ambermere kept up a majestic monologue you have a pretty little garden here mr lucas she said though perhaps inconveniently small your croquet lawn does not look to me the full size and then there is no tennis court but i think you have a little strip of grass somewhere which you use for bowls have you not presently i will walk round with you and see your domain put pug down again miss lyle and let him run about see he wants to play with one of those croquet balls put it in motion for him and he will run with it bless me who is that coming up the path at such a tremendous speed in a bath chair oh i see it is mrs weston she should not go as fast as that if pug was to stray on to the path he would be run over better pick up pug again miss lyle till she is gone by and here is colonel boucher if he had brought his bulldogs i should have asked him to take them away again i should like a cup of tea miss lyle with plenty of milk in it and not too strong you know how i like my tea and a biscuit or something for pug with a little cream in a saucer or anything that's handy won't you come into the smoking parlour and have tea there lady ambermere asked peppino the smoking parlour asked she how very strange to lay tea in a smoking-room peppino explained that nobody had in all probability used the smoking parlour to smoke in for five or six years oh if that is so i'll come she said better bring pug along too miss lyle there is a croquet hoop i am glad i saw it or i should have stumbled over it perhaps oh this is the smoking parlour is it why do you have rushes on the floor put pug in a chair miss lyle or he may prick his paws books too i see that one lying open is an old one it's latin poetry the library at the hall is very famous for its classic literature the first viscount collected it and it numbers many thousands of volumes indeed it is a most wonderful library said peppino i can never tear myself away from it when i'm at the hall i do not wonder i am a great student myself and often spend a morning there do i not miss lyle 
You should have some new glass put in those windows, Mr. Lucas. On a dark day, it must be very difficult to see here. By the way, your good wife told me that there would probably be a very remarkable Indian at her party, a Brahmin from Benares, she said. I should like to have a talk with him while I'm having my tea. Kindly prepare a peach for me, Miss Lyle. Peppino had heard about the retirement of the Guru in consequence of a message from the guides being expected, and proceeded to explain this to Lady Ambermere, who did not take the slightest notice as she was looking at the peaches through her lorgnette. That one nearest to me looks eatable, she said, and then I do not see Miss Olga Braceley, though I distinctly told her I should be here this afternoon, and she said Mrs. Lucas had asked her. She sang to us yesterday evening at the hall, and very creditably indeed. Her husband, Mr. Shuttleworth, is a cousin of the late Lord's. Lucia had come into the smoking parlour during this speech, and heard these fatal words. At the moment she would gladly have recalled her invitation to Olga Braceley altogether, sooner than have alluded therein to Mr. Braceley. But that was one of the irremediable things of life, and since it was no use wasting regret on that, she was only the more eager for Olga to come, whatever her husband's name was. She braced herself up to the situation. Peppino, are you looking after Lady Ambermere? she said. Dear Lady Ambermere, I hope they are all taking care of you. A very decent peach, said Lady Ambermere. The south wall of my garden is covered with them, and they are always a peculiarly delicious flavour. The hall is famed for its peaches. I understood that Miss Braceley was going to be here, Mrs. Lucas. I cannot imagine what makes her so late. I was always famed for my punctuality myself. I finished my tea. The lawn outside was now growing thick with people all in their items, and Lady Ambermere, as she emerged from the smoking parlour again, viewed the scene with marked disfavour. The two Miss Antrobuses had just arrived, and skipped up to their hostess with pretty cries. We are dreadfully late, said the eldest, but it was all Piggy's fault. No, Goosey, it was yours, said the other. How can you be so naughty as to say it was mine? Dear Mrs. Lucas, what a lovely party it's being, and may we go and play bowls? Lady Ambermere regarded their retreating backs as they raced off with arms intertwined to the bowling green. And who are those young ladies, she asked, and why Piggy and Goosey? Miss Lyle, do not let Pug go to the bowls, they are very heavy. Elsewhere, Mrs. Antropus was slowly advancing from group to group with her trumpet violently engaged in receiving refreshment. But conversation was not quite so varied as usual. For there was an attitude of intense expectation with regard to the appearance of Miss Braceley that made talk rather jerky and unconnective. Then also it had gone about that the mysterious Indian, who had been seen now and then during the last week, was actually staying with Mrs. Lucas. And why was he not here? More unconjecturable yet, though not so thrillingly interesting, was the absence of Mr. Georgie. What could have happened to him that he was not flitting about on his hostess's errands and being the life and soul of the party? It was in vain that Mrs. Antropus plodded on her methodical course, seeking answers to all these riddles, and that Mrs. Weston, in her swifter progression, dashed about in her bath-chair from group to group, wherever people seemed to be talking in an animated manner. She could learn nothing, and Mrs. Antropus could learn nothing. In fact, the only information to be had on the subject was what Mrs. Weston herself supplied. 
She had a very high-coloured, handsome face and an extremely impressive manner, as if she was imparting information of the very highest importance. She naturally spoke in a loud, clear voice, so that she had not got to raise it much even when she addressed Mrs. Antrobus. Her wealth of discursive detail was absolutely unrivalled, and she was quite the best observer in Rhizome. The last I saw of Miss Bracely, she said, exactly as if she had been told to describe something on oath in the witness-box, was a little after half-past one to-day. It must have been after half-past, because when I got home it was close on a quarter to two, and I wasn't a hundred yards from my house when I saw her. As soon as I saw her, I said to my gardener boy, Henry Luton, who was pushing me, he's the son of old Mrs. Luton who kept the fish shop, and when she died last year, I began to get my fish from Brinton, for I didn't fancy the look of the new person who took on the business, and Henry went to live with his aunt. That was his father's sister, not his mother's, for Mrs. Luton never had a sister, and no brothers either. Well, I said to Henry, you can go a bit slower, Henry. As we're late, we're late, and a minute or two more doesn't make any difference. No, oh, ma'am, said Henry, touching his cap. So we went slower. Miss Bracely was just opposite the ducking-pond then, and presently she came out between the elms. She had just an ordinary morning frock on. It was dark blue, about the same shade as your cape, Mrs. Antrobus, or perhaps a little darker, for the sunshine brightened it up. Quite simple it was, nothing grand. And she looked at the watch on her wrist, and seemed to me to walk a little quicker after that, as if she was a bit late, just as I was. But slower than I was going, I could not go, for I was crawling along and before she got off the grass I had come to the corner of Church Lane, and though I turned my head round sharp like that at the very last moment, so as to catch the last of her, she hadn't more than stepped off the grass onto the road before the Loristinus on the corner of Colonel Boucher's garden. No, of the vicar's garden hid her from me, and if you ask me... Mrs. Weston stopped for a moment, nodding her head up and down to emphasise the importance of what she had said, and to raise the expectations of Mrs. Antrobus to the highest pitch as to what was coming. And if you ask me where I think she was going and what she was going to do, she said, I believe she was going out to lunch and that she was going to one of those houses there, just across the road, or she made a bee-line across the green towards them. Well, there are three houses there. There's Mrs. Quantock's, and it couldn't have been that or else Mrs. Quantock would have some news of her. Or Colonel Boucher's, and it wouldn't have been that, for the Colonel would have had news of her. And we all know whose the third house just there is. Mrs. Antropus had not completely followed this powerful reasoning. But Colonel Boucher and Mrs. Quantock are both here, eh? said she. Mrs. Weston raised her voice a little. That's what I'm saying, she announced. But who isn't here, whom we should expect to see, and where's his house? It was generally felt that Mrs. Weston had hit the nail on the head. What that nail precisely was, no one knew, because she had not explained why both Olga Bracely and Georgie were absentees. But now came the climax, bang on the top of the nail, a shrewd straight stroke. So there she was, having her lunch with Mr. Georgie, said Mrs. Weston now introducing this name for the first time, with the highest dramatic art, and they would be seeing round his house afterwards, and then, when it was time to come here, Mr. Georgie would have remembered that the party was Hightum, not Titum, 
and there was Miss Bracely not in Hightum at all, nor even Tightum, in my opinion, but Scrub. No doubt, she said to him, is it a very grand sort of party, Mr. Pilson? And he couldn't do other than reply, for we all received notice that it was Hightum. Mine came about twelve. He couldn't do other than reply, yes, Miss Bracely, it is. Good gracious me, she would say, and I've only got this old rag on. I must go back to the Ambermere Arms, and tell my maid, for she brought a maid in that second motor, and tell my maid to put me out something tidy. But that will be a great bother for you, he would say, or something of that sort, for I don't pretend to know what he actually did say, and she would reply, Oh, Mr. Pilson, but I must put on something tidy, and it would be so kind of you if you would wait for me while I do that, and let us go together. That's what she said. Mrs. Weston made a sign to her gardener to proceed, wishing to leave the stage at the moment of climax. And that's why they're both late, she said, and was whirled away in the direction of the bowling green. The minutes went on, and still nobody appeared who could possibly have accounted for the three-lined whip of Hightums, but by degrees Lucia, who had utterly failed to decoy Lady Ambermere into the place of thrones, began to notice a certain thinning on her lawns. Her guests, it would seem, were not in process of dispersal, for it was a long way off seven o'clock yet, and also none would be so ill-mannered as to leave without shaking hands and say what a delicious afternoon they had spent. But certainly the lawns grew emptier, and she was utterly unable to explain this extraordinary phenomenon, until she happened to go close to the windows of her music-room. Then, looking in, she saw that not only was every chair there occupied, but people were standing about in expectant groups. For a moment her heart beat high. Could Olga have arrived and by some mistake have gone straight in there? It was a dreamlike possibility, but it burst like a ray of sunshine on the party that was rapidly becoming a nightmare to her, for everyone, not Lady Ambermere alone, was audibly wondering when the Guru was coming and when Miss Bracely was going to sing. At the moment, as she paused, a window in the music-room was opened, and Piggy's odious head looked out. "'Oh, Mrs. Lucas,' she said, "'Goosey and I have got beautiful seats, and Mamma is quite close to the piano, where she will hear excellently. Has she promised to sing Siegfried? Is Mr. Georgie going to play for her? It's the most delicious surprise. How could you be so sly and clever as not to tell anybody?' Lucia cloaked her rage under the most playful manner as she ran into the music-room through the hall. You naughty things, she said, do all come into the garden. It's a garden party, and I couldn't guess where you had all gone. What's all this about singing and playing? I know nothing of it. She herded the incredulous crowd out into the garden again, all in their items, every one of them, only to meet Lady Ambermere with Pug and Miss Lyle coming in. Better be going, Miss Lyle, she said, kindly run out and find my people. Oh, here's Mrs. Lucas. Been very pleasant indeed, thank you. Good-bye, your charming garden, yes. Oh, but it's very early, said Lucia. It's hardly six yet. Indeed, said Lady Ambermere, been so charming. And she marched out, after Miss Lyle, out into Shakespeare's garden. It was soon terribly evident that other people were sharing Lady Ambermere's conclusion about the delights of the afternoon and the necessity of getting home. Colonel Boucher had to take his bulldogs for a run and walk off the excitement of the party. Piggy and Goosey explained to their mother that nobody was going to sing, and by silvery laughter tried to drown her just indignation, 
and presently Lucia had the agony of seeing Mrs. Quantock seated on one of the thrones that had been designed for much worthier ends, and Peppino sitting in the other, while a few guests drifted about the lawn with all the purposelessness of autumn leaves. What with the guru presumably meditating upstairs still, and with Olga Bracely most conspicuously absent, she had hardly nervous energy left to wonder what could have become of Georgie. Never in all the years of his ministry had he failed to be at her elbow through the entire duration of her garden parties, flying about on her errands like a tripping Hermes, herding her flocks if she wanted them in one part of the garden rather than another, like a sagacious sheepdog, and coming back to heel again ready for further tasks. But today Georgie was mysteriously away, for he had neither applied for leave nor given any explanation, however improbable, of his absence. He at least would have prevented Lady Ambermere, the only cornerstone of the party, from going away in what must be called a huff, and have continued to tell Lucia how marvellous she was and what a beautiful party they were having. With the prospect of two other much more magnificent cornerstones, Lucia had not provided any further entertainment for her guests. There was not the conjurer from Brinton, nor the three young ladies who played banjo trios, nor even the mild performing doves which cooed so prettily, and walked up their mistress's outstretched fingers according to order if they felt disposed. There was nothing to justify Hytems, there was scarcely even sufficient to warrant Titems. Scrub was written all over the desert's dusty face. It was about half-past six when the miracles began, and without warning the guru walked out into the garden. Probably he had watched the departure of the great motor with its chauffeur and footman and Miss Lyle and Lady Ambermere and Pug, and with his intuitive sagacity had conjectured that the danger from Madras was over. He wore his new red slippers, a wonderful turban, and an ecstatic smile. Lucia and Daisy met him with cries of joy, and the remaining guests, those drifting autumn leaves, were swept up, as it were, by some compelling broom and clustered in a heap in front of him. There had been a great message, a word of might, full of love and peace. Never had there been such a word. And then, even before they had all felt the full thrill of that, once more the door from the house opened, and out came Olga Bracely and Georgie. It is true that she had still her blue morning frock, which Mrs. Weston had designated as scrub, but it was a perfectly new scrub, and if it had been completely covered with Paris labels, they would not have made its provenance one whit clearer. Dear Mrs. Lucas, she said, Mr. Georgie and I are terribly late, and it was quite my fault. There was a game of croquet that wouldn't come to an end, and my life has been guided by only one principle, and that is to finish a game of croquet whatever happens. I missed six trains once by finishing a game of croquet, and Mr. Georgie was so unkind he wouldn't give me a cup of tea or let me change my frock, but dragged me off to see you, and I won. The autumn leaves turned green and vigorous again, while Georgie went to get refreshment for his conqueror, and they were all introduced. She allowed herself to be taken with the utmost docility, how unlike somebody, into the tent with the thrones. She confessed to having stood on tiptoe and looked into Mrs. Quantock's garden, and wanted to see it so much from the other side of the wall. And this garden, too, might she go and wander all over this garden when she had finished the most delicious peach that the world held? 
She was so glad she had not had tea with Mr. Georgie. He would never have given her such a good peach. Now the departing guests in their items lingering on the village green a little, and being rather sarcastic about the utter failure of Lucia's party, could hardly help seeing Georgie and Olga emerge from his house and proceed swiftly in the direction of the hearst, and Mrs. Antropus, who retained marvellous eyesight as compensation for her defective hearing, saw them go in, and simultaneously thought that she had left her parasol at the hearst. Next moment she was walking thoughtfully away in that direction. Mrs. Weston had been the next to realise what had happened, and though she had to go round by the road in her bath-chair, she passed Mrs. Antropus a hundred yards from the house, her pretext for going back being that Lucia had promised to lend her the book by Antonio Caporelli, or was it Caporelto? So once more the door into the garden opened, and out shot Mrs. Weston. Olga by this time had made her tour of the garden, and might she see the house? She might. There was a pretty music-room, at this stage just as Mrs. Weston was poured out into the garden, as with the floodgates being unopened, the crowd that followed her came surging into Shakespeare's garden, and never had the mermaid's tail, behind which was secreted the electric bell, experienced such feverish usage. Pressure after pressure invoked its aid, and the pretext for readmission was soon not made at all, or simply disregarded by the parlour-maid. Colonel Boucher might have left a bulldog, and Mrs. Antropus an ear-trumpet, or Miss Antropus Piggy a shoelace, and the other Miss Antropus Goosey a shoehorn, but in brisk succession the guests who had been so sarcastic about the party on the village green jostled each other in order to revisit the scenes of their irony. Miss Olga Braceley had been known to enter the portals, and as many of them who entered after her found a guru as well. Olga was in the music-room when the crowd had congested the hall. People were introduced to her, and sank down into the nearest chairs. Mrs. Antropus took up her old place by the keyboard of the piano. Everybody seemed to be expecting something, and, by degrees, the import of their longing was borne in upon Olga. They waited, and waited, and waited, much as she had waited for a cigarette the evening before. She looked at the piano, and there was a comfortable murmur from her audience. She looked at Lucia, who gave a great gasp and said nothing at all. She was the only person present who was standing now, except her hostess, and Mrs. Weston's gardener, who had wheeled his mistress' chair into an admirable position for hearing. She was not too well pleased, but after all. "'Would you like me to sing?' she asked Lucia. "'Yes, ah, there's a copy of Siegfried. Do you play?' Lucia could not smile any more than she was smiling already. "'Is it very diffy?' she asked. "'Could I read it, Georgie? Shall I try?' She slid onto the music-stool. "'Me to begin?' she asked, finding that Olga had opened the book at the salutation of Brunhilde, which Lucia had practised so diligently all the morning. She got no answer. Olga, standing by her, had assumed a perfectly different aspect. For her gaiety, her lightness, was substituted some air of intense concentrated seriousness, which Lucia did not understand at all. She was looking straight in front of her, gathering herself in, and paying not the smallest attention to Lucia or anybody else. One two, said Lucia, three, now, and she plunged wildly into a sea of demi-semi-quavers. 
Olga had just opened her mouth, but shut it again. No, she said, once more, and she whistled the motive. Oh, it's so diffy, said Lucia, beginning again. Georgie, turn over. Georgie turned over, and Lucia, counting audibly to herself, made an incomparable mess all over the piano. Olga turned to her accompanist. Shall I try, she said. She sat down at the piano and made some sort of sketch of the accompaniment, simplifying and yet retaining the essence, and then she sang. End of chapter.